Please rise as we read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Hear now God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Amen. God's Word is our ultimate authority. We have many authorities in our lives, uh, but our ultimate authority, our final court of appeal, our final standard, our highest standard is God's Word. This is the most fundamental doctrine of our faith. Our confession of faith begins with the chapter on the Holy Scriptures. In fact, the world began with this doctrine. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it will do us well for us to begin with this doctrine. First, to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's settled. Jesus is my Lord. And second, let God be found true, though every man a liar. His word is true. When all else is shaky or fails or we're not certain, that's the one thing in our lives that is certain. And so I call upon you as God's people to resolve up front that God's word is your ultimate authority. You do not sit in judgment of him or his word. It is God's word to which we must conform our thinking. The fall of man was the result of not submitting to the authority of God's Word. Remember Satan said to Eve, Has God said? Are you really going to take His Word for it in, in regard to what you should or shouldn't do? You need to find out for yourself. Not conforming our thoughts and ways to His thoughts and ways is what got man into trouble in the first place. We wanted to decide for ourselves whether what he said was reasonable or unreasonable, whether it was fair or unfair. Man thought God owed him an explanation. The mark of restoration or reconciliation to God begins with our submission to his word. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is why it is impossible to say, I love Jesus, but I have no intention of believing or doing what he says. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Those two are tied together. Now, predestination is one of those doctrines that test our willingness to submit to the word of God. It challenges our sense of control, it challenges our pride, and it will require humility before Almighty God. Ephesians 1, verse 4, which is where we're going to focus today, tests our willingness to receive the Word of God. Let me read verse 4 again. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We are challenged to believe that. And we are challenged to obey it and to not shrink away uh, from the boldness of its assertions. To choose is to elect. So this is the doctrine of election and predestination. I assume that all would agree that God's people are his chosen people. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The real issue is the difficulty of why God chose the people he did. The real issue. The question is, is it because they met some condition, because we passed some kind of a test, or we were better or wiser than others? Or is God's choice all of grace and totally a matter of God's mercy on the undeserving. In fact, it would seem that the only glimpse we get of any precondition in man is the exact opposite of what we might think. Let me just give two examples from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other, any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. Then a similar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-30. For you see, your calling... Brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame that, uh, that those which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. So in order to appreciate the value of what God has done, we have to remember where we began. Paul put it this way in the very next chapter in Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's your starting place. That is where... Uh, That is, we were cut off from God, we were dead, who is the very source of life. We could not lift a finger to help ourselves. If we were to be rescued at all, then God would have to do all the rescuing. Now, we already know that God has chosen individuals, for example, Noah. We said, of all the earth, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abram, you you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. 
Isaac, and Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. Moses, Psalm 106, 23 says, Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. He chose Rahab, the harlot. He chose Ruth, the Moabitess. David is chosen over his brothers. Bathsheba, an unlikely candidate, and yet God chose her to be a part of his overall plan to bring salvation to the world. All of these and many others were integral to the plan of God. And so, here's what I assert. All Christians must believe something about predestination and election. The Bible speaks of it. You've got to believe something about it. It's necessary that we believe it. Let me just give a few passages. Romans 8, 29 and 30. He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. Ephesians 1.11, further down in our text today. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Romans 9.11-12, for the children, Jacob and Esau, not yet being born or having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The subject of predestination, or God's choice of us, contains many mysteries. And then, and when we face those mysteries, as we often do with an infinite God. I can't, it's hard to think of any subject regarding God that we don't bump into mystery very quickly. There are some fundamental principles I believe we have to keep in mind as we approach this subject. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a good one just to memorize. It comes in handy to pull out uh, on many occasions as soon as I bump into a mystery. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are some things that don't belong to me. God hasn't told me. I don't know. I can't know. He's infinite. I'm finite. And the gap between infinite and finite is infinite. A whole bunch, there's a whole bunch more I don't know than what I do know. But if the infinite, all-knowing, almighty God is pleased to tell me some things, I can know some things. Some things have been revealed, and those are mine, and those are yours. So our job is to find out what he's told us and to believe them and to trust them and to stand on them and to rest in them and to be comforted by them and to not fret ourselves unduly over those things he hasn't revealed. There will always be more that we, more that we don't know than we do. And so that means we have to start with what we do know. This, I think, is a good way to read the Bible. Just ask questions like, what does this verse or passage tell me about God? Or about myself? Or about the world? Or about salvation? 
What do I know? Not what do I not know. Let's start with what we do know. How can we add to those things that we do know for sure? Because God has revealed certain things to us, we can know certain things for certain. This is what enables us to hold the mysteries and even delight in the mysteries. For example, knowing for certain that God is all-wise, that God is all-powerful, and that God loves me. Those are three things I know. So then no matter what else happens in my life, no matter what else goes on, what do I know? I know God is all-powerful, I know He's all-wise, and I know He loves me. And He grants peace then that passes understanding. I don't understand all that's going on. So when it comes to questions of God's sovereignty and salvation, there is much that is mystery, and yet there are some things that can be known. And in knowing those things, this doctrine becomes a comfort and a joy. And for the rest, we will need to trust our all-wise God and resist the temptation of of unknowable speculation. Um... Just to give an example, it's not like Christians were the only ones that have this problem of mystery and difficulty, but I just want to give an example here, an extended quote from Mitch Stokes' book, How to Be an Atheist. Stephen Hawking is frequently cited as kind of the smartest guy ever, uh, the scientist who has all the answers that nobody else has about the mysteries of life. Hawking's solutions, he says, to the mysteries of God is the sophisticated theory in physics, M-theory. M-theory, no one knows what the M stands for, is a unification of five different string theories and posits 11 dimensions. In fact, says Hawking, M-theory is, quote, a candidate for the ultimate theory of everything, And, quote, the unified theory Einstein was hoping to find. And if so, he continues, it will be the successful conclusion of a search going back more than 3,000 years. We will have found the grand design. Minus the designer. Continuing, the only point now is that this new theory of everything is putting us hot on the trail of of an answer to the ultimate question of life the universe, and everything, and this is news fit to print. Here is what we might call the answer, at least in the broad outline. Remember, I'm illustrating that uh, universe, this this is a big problem, big issue. And here's here's the alternative. According to M theory, ours is not the only universe. Instead, M theory predicts that a great many universes were created out of nothing. Their creation does not require the intervention of some supernatural being or God. Rather, these multiple universes arise naturally from physical laws. Physical law. They are a prediction of science. Each universe has many possible histories and many possible states at later times. That is, at times like the present, long after their creation. Most of these states will be quite unlike the universe that we observe and quite unsuitable for the existence of any form of life. Only a very few would allow creatures like us to exist. 
Thus our presence selects out from the vast array uh, only those universes that are compatible with our existence. Although we are puny and insignificant on the scale of the cosmos, this makes us, in a sense, the lords of creation. There is a lot going on here, so let's unpack it bit by bit. I'm going to give you one more short paragraph. There's much more here, as you can imagine. First, consider the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Notice the striking thing Hawking reveals about the something. The something we're trying to account for is not what we expected. It is not merely the universe we've come to know and love, but in fact an incomprehensible number of universes. Hawking says there are perhaps as many as 10 to the 500th power universes. That is, by the way, more than all the atoms in the known universe, in our universe. All hermetically sealed from each other, yet simultaneously existing. Now, I'm going to stop there because my head really starts hurting beyond that. But my head hurts when I think about God and what the Bible says, too. We're dealing with things so far beyond us. And we are either left to speculate like this, or either there is a God who has revealed some things that we can stand on, that we can know. And so that brings us to a single verse, which I hope to very quickly unpack this morning. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, we're going to go into further depth on this subject in weeks ahead, but today I want us to see what we can know from the, this short verse. Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 provide us with a fair amount of information about the doctrines of predestination and election. Again, they are by no means exhaustive. Nevertheless, these passages do provide enough information to be of great comfort and encouragement. And this should result in even greater praise and worship of God. In a book titled Chosen for Life, Samuel Storms points out four things we learn about election in Ephesians 1.4. First, election, or God's choice, is pre-temporal. Or to use the Apostle's own words, it was before the foundation of the world that God, God the Father chose us in Christ. Paul also writes about this in another letter, so we know that, as we should say, he writes about this often in his letters, so that we know that this is a doctrine that he places some emphasis on. This is not an obscure footnote. It's really central to Paul's theology. So, for example, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us, in Christ Jesus before the world began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Second Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief. In the truth, just as with Jacob and Esau, God's choice of his people 
was not predicated upon human deeds. One of the secret things concerns why God decrees, why His decrees are what they are. We don't know, uh, excuse me, we don't know that they are the result, excuse me, we do know that they are the result of His wise and perfect plan. But that doesn't mean that we've been told why He did what He did. What we have been told, and what we do know for sure, is that He chose us in Christ before the world began, which means He chose us before we began. God didn't look out into the future in His crystal ball to see what we would do and then ratify our choice. His choice predates our choices. As history unfolds in time and space, we see the unveiling of God's eternal plan, which was conceived before time. There is no contingency in God. Jesus came right on time, for example, Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength in due time or at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Acts 2, 23 and 24, Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. Moreover, the work of Jesus on the cross had particular people in mind and actually accomplished their salvation. John 6, 37-39, All that the Father gives me, how many? All of them, will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That all of, that all he has given me, I should, should of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. John six forty three and forty four. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John ten. 26 through 29, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. They sh- neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Our believing is not the beginning, but rather the result of God's choice and gift. That we know. Am I left with questions and mysteries? Yes. Acts 13.48 doesn't seem to offer me a lot of explanation that satisfies my curiosities, but affirms this. Now, when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, remember we're dead in trespasses and sins, but then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And so the the theological and practical implications of this are profound. Either God gets all the glory for our salvation or else he has to share it with us. We do not thank God for helping us or for allowing us to help him in our own salvation. God does all the saving. This thing, this choice of God that he made before the foundation of the world should overwhelm us with joy and cause us to worship him. But why me and not the other guy? That's not fair. You know what? You're right. It's not fair. You have not received what you deserve. It was grace. Grace. Marvelous grace. Like Job, I want more answers. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Good answer. But like Job, God wants us to be content and trust him. To trust his goodness, his wisdom, and his power. Paul also anticipates this kind of objection. Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, see he knows what you're going to ask. God knows. He knew what I was going to ask. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Boy, you know, I really don't like getting put in my place here. I, I say I don't like it. It's actually a really good place to be put. It puts me in the right place. It makes me the creature and him the creator. It's exactly what he says. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does the potter, does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, that is, if God, if God could have just wiped everybody out, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? Well now, I think that means it's time to be quiet and to be thankful. Parents know this kind of answer is often necessary for little children, right? Because I said so. Trust me. That's enough. Now, the other three I'm going to point out, we're going to go much quicker here. That was the long one. Second thing the text tells us regarding, is regarding the purpose or the goal of election. God shows us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
So while we don't know why he chose us in particular, we do know with certainty his purpose in choosing us. We do know that he intends what he intends for us to be and where he's taking us in Christ. And we know that his choice was rooted in love. He has begun a good work in us. Paul tells us that there's something else that we can know for certain. Being confident of this very thing, he says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 2, after we, we said 8 and 9, for by grace he saved through faith and so forth, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God created us to make us like Christ to transform us, to change us, to make us holy. So God chooses His particular people to be holy. That's what they're chosen to. They're not just chosen to go to heaven. That's the result. They're chosen to be holy, to be Christ-like. That's what we're saved to. And if you're not saved to that, you're not saved. That's what salvation is. That's the object. So if a person is neither holy nor blameless, then they are not chosen. In Philippians 2.15, Paul urges believers to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights to the world. So how can you know if you're chosen? Well, right now there's the evidence of holiness and blamelessness in your life. Now, to be blameless just means to be right with God. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means that when you fail, you go before God and He forgives your sins and you're restored and you continue to move forward in Christ. You should. Another way to say it is when you look behind you, have you grown? Are you more like Christ now than you were last year? Can you see any progress? Do you see any fruit? That's the evidence that God has done something in you. If there's no fruit, then there's no root. Third thing we learn from Ephesians 1-4 concerning the relationship between election and being predestined to adoption. And I'm simply going to say this morning, I will have much more to say about this next week. But suffice it to say now that we were homeless orphans and God chose to take us home with him and make us his children. It is a full-blown rescue and restoration. Listen to this description of God's rescue of His people found in Ezekiel 16. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, But you were thrown into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord. 
Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. The fourth point of Paul's statement is that we are chosen in Christ. It is only because we are in Christ... God's only begotten Son, Monogenes, the unique Son of God, that we as individuals may be said to be elect ourselves. Since we are in Christ, He is our head, He is our representative, and we are united to Him, and therefore we receive all the benefits of His redemption. Christ is the means and the goal of our election. Ephesians 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 1.9, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So regardless of what's going on in the world, Regardless of what's going on in the culture or the next election or in your life, God is in control. If God is sovereign, is in sovereign control, that means there are no real chance happenings. Remember, we cannot know or understand all of God's ways, but we can know and understand things He has told us. And in these things, we find strength and comfort. He is our rock. He is our salvation. From human perspective, some events appear to be accidents. And we can find a number of them in Scripture. Remember the the man who happened by the the stranger who had been attacked on the road uh, in the Good Samaritan. Ruth happened to find, or Boaz happened, uh, it just happened to glean in the field of Boaz, the Bible tells us, just happened to do that. We could give many examples Also, from human perspective, the arrow that killed King Ahab was fired at random. It says, Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. Now the death of King Ahab in the battle had been planned by God and prophesied by the prophet. And so God was in control of that too. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. He is in control of the sparrow that falls. There are no exceptions to this rule. When there are calamities, the Bible says, 
uh, Isaiah 45.7, I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace. I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed one as well as the other, so that a man can find out nothing that will come after him. We could go on and on, but I'm going to close with this. God opens hard hearts, some of the hardest. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. We worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Remember, Paul was not a man of eloquent speech. But he also says in Exodus 14:4, Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all of his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord God. These doctrines are hard. There are many mysteries, but there are some things we can know. And we can stand on those things, and we can find great peace. God loves me in spite of me, not because of me. Boy, that's good. Because if it's because of me, I'm in big trouble. He loved, he loved me, and that's why he chose me. He's, we are the objects of his affection in Christ. Let's pray. O Lord our God, never let us foolishly think that any battle, spiritual or material, has been won by our own power. Remove all pride from us and give us implicit trust in you and a desire for you to have the glory. In the battles of this day, let us lean upon your arm and have true victory. Remind us of Israel's conquest of the land, that it was not by their own sword or by their own arm. You did not choose Israel because it was a nation greater in number than any, other, any of the other nations, or more powerful, cultural, or intellectual, but because of your great covenant love. Keep us from saying or thinking, My power and the might of my arm have gained me this wealth. Instruct our minds and keep us sober, that we might hope fully in your grace. Thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in Christ by way of your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus came to save sinners, and he came to do it all by himself without any contribution from man. As I've said before, we kind of have one contribution, but that's our sins. But he provides all the saving grace. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus saves sinners like you and me. And as we have said often, your goodness and your obedience provide nothing, no assistance in your salvation. The sovereignty of God rescues us. It arrests us in our rebellion and it draws us to the Son. Obedience to God is never the cause of salvation. As Jesus said, it is the fruit of our love for Him. We come weekly and corporately 
to confess our sins, to receive his absolution, and to renew covenant with him. His work was done on our behalf once for all. He said, it is finished. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Now we confess our sins daily, and he forgives and cleanses us daily. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. He prayed, uh, excuse me, he paid for our sins one time on the cross. He became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. And we come back here every week to remember that. We're, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus. Jesus isn't being given again and again and again. That was a one-time thing. But we forget. We lose focus. We need to be reminded. We need to start our new week remembering what He has done for us so that we do go out and live lives of gratitude and love. God planned our salvation so there'd be no room for boasting except in the cross of Jesus Christ. We are left only to give thanks to God for so great a salvation. And that is why we come to the table to commune with Him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor uh, from, last, from the 19th century. He said, none of us get on our knees and pray God to God. God, thank you that I was smarter than all those other folks. That I came to you when they wouldn't. And what do we pray? God, thank you for saving me. It all goes to him. All glory to him. I'll conclude as we come to the table by reading the lyrics of Isaac Watts. How sweet and awesome is the place. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come and send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see our churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. I invite all you who are baptized lovers of Christ, followers of Jesus, to come to this table, to eat, to drink, to remember, and to go forth and live lives of gratitude. Heavenly Father, we thank you also for the faithful saints who have both guarded and delivered the gospel to us, who by their lives and testimonies were faithful to their calling. We rejoice in your kind providence which brought the good news to our ears and for the Holy Spirit who opened our hearts to receive so great a salvation. Help us now to live with a view of our mission and to raise our children accordingly with right thinking and with hearts that love the way of the Lord, that we might embrace your mission and transmit that mission to our children and our children's children so that we might be found standing with all the faithful as we proclaim the good news to all men everywhere. Bless now this day. Bless our feast. Bless our rest. 
Bless our rejoicing in you and in one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Amen. Amen.